Hello, welcome to another episode of the Contrarian Marketing Podcast, where we give you ideas you might not be thinking about. Today, Eli and I talk about the overstock migration, Hopin's implosion, and recruiters. Eli, tell me about LinkedIn. What's going on there? So it's not really just LinkedIn. It's actually like summertime and vacation. So I, I've typically always had this cadence where I post it on LinkedIn at least every day, sometimes twice a day if a, a LinkedIn post didn't really do so well. And throughout the summer, I haven't been as diligent about it because I've been vacationing. I, I think we talked about this in a prior episode. I think the value of working for myself as a consultant is I can work for myself and be on my own schedule. And I think this is during my first summer as a consultant. Didn't have a full-time job, so I, I left my job at SurveyMonkey in 2019. And that summer, I went away, and my kids were going to the beach. We were away, and I, was, I had a Zoom call. I was like, this is ridiculous. I do these Zoom calls and earn, this is pre-pandemic, so we still did Zoom. I, I do these Zoom calls, and I do consulting, so the family can be on vacation to go to the beach. That's kind of dumb that I'm going to be working while they're going to the beach. So I canceled the Zoom call, and I rescheduled for another time because, again, that's the benefit of working for yourself. So since then, whenever my kids are on vacation, whether it's like you know winter break or summer vacation, I have a much lighter schedule because I can control some of the things I do. Certainly the standing meetings, those always have to happen, but I can move them to times that are more efficient. And you know, my awesome clients have allowed me, while I was in Europe this summer, to move meetings to later in the day so I could have those meetings in late at night in Europe. So I had a full day of having a good time and touring and all that. And then new client calls, again, I can control those. So if it's a business I didn't really think I was going to be able to close, I wasn't going to take time out of my vacation to have that call. And you know, this is another thing we should probably make an entire episode about, but I view my schedule as eight hours per day of free. So in order to add a meeting to my calendar, I'm taking away free time. I'm taking away time I'd be doing something else. When you're an employee, you have eight hours plus per day of not free, eight hours per day that you're supposed to dedicate to your work. And as meetings get scheduled, they're just chipping away at that block. So it's a totally different attitude towards, you know, is this a meeting I really want to take or is this a meeting I don't have to take or it could happen by email? Again, that's the value of being a consultant and the choice you have. So we're going to do a whole episode about that in general in the calendars. But going back to LinkedIn followers, so obviously I focused on LinkedIn a lot. My follower account grew. But then I realized over the summer I wasn't doing that as much and I don't know if I care because I don't monetize his followers that I really appreciate everyone that follows me, but the number of followers doesn't change anything about my life or my business. The things that are most important to me from LinkedIn are the quality of messages I get, not the quantity. I get a lot of messages about selling links, but the quality of messages I get. So in the next couple of weeks, I don't know when we release this, but I'm going to be doing an event with Google that's important. You know, that's, you know, again, speaking on behalf of Google, that did not come from my LinkedIn followers, and that's good for overall my business and outlook. And I'm doing an event for Unilever that came as a LinkedIn message, but that is not a result of the number of followers I have. So that's important. Those are important things for my business. Like the companies that reach out and are interested in potentially hiring me as a consultant, the companies who reach out looking for advice. That's not for my followers. Having, you know, a, another 10,000, 50,000 followers that come from, you know, a different country. There's a lot of countries that maybe would not, there are companies that wouldn't hire me from those countries, but I have a lot of followers from those countries. Let's, let's pick on Argentina, for example. There's a lot of people who live in Argentina. I don't think I'll ever hire, get a client from Argentina. So if I have another 50,000 followers from Argentina, 
doesn't matter. Makes my number go higher, but doesn't really matter. So that's been my approach. How about you? What are you thinking about followers these days? And what are you doing to grow your followers? On one hand, a high follower count has some signaling effect. When you see somebody who has, say, a million followers or a million subscribers somewhere, or even just 100,000, that number in itself has a certain effect or a certain power. But of course, when you dig a little bit deeper, there's a lot of questionable stuff in there. Like, what's the actual goal here? Because followers are never the goal. Subscribers, impressions are never the goal. It's never the end goal, at least, right? They're just a, a means to an end. So I generally agree with you. I, For LinkedIn specifically, I like to look at engagement and the number of engagements over time. And that should that should kind of at least be constant and engagement rate should be constant with follower growth or, and better said, the number of engagements should go up over time. That to me is a much, much better signal because it means that people find my content valuable and, and there is a, there's a, a, you know, a, a exchange happening when it comes to other misleading metrics. You know, I think it's very tough to say a metric is always, there are some metrics that are always misleading. For, for, let's take, for example, impressions, right? In organic search and SEO. So impressions, if they go up, that's kind of nice, but it doesn't really do much for you because you care mostly about clicks and you can care even more about revenue eventually, right? So, but at the same time, it can be a leading indicator. So I do look at number of followers as a leading indicator, but the guardrail metric, the metric that holds everything in place should be the engagement rate. And, and as long as that's constant and my followers go up, I know everything is going well, and it's the same in SEO, right? If impressions go up, click-through rate is constant, and revenue is going up, awesome. If that's not the case, then you can go down the funnel and see where the biggest drop-off is, and then diagnose based on that. So I think it's easy to get caught up in misleading metrics or vanity metrics, but it's also wrong to say that they're, they don't have any value at all because they can be leading indicators, I agree with you. Yeah. But I, I think there's a, there's a difference. Oh, we're not supposed to agree. I disagree with you completely. I do think that it doesn't really matter. And I think I have 44 or 45,000 followers right now. It doesn't matter to me whether I have 45,000 or 65,000. There's probably a difference if I have another million followers, that would be great. The only thing that followers do help with is the people that follow you are actually following you and they see your updates in their feed. So that's great. And you know you have more, you have a higher base to go viral on. So like my typical posts will do tens of thousands of impressions. That comes because some of those forty five thousand people, forty four thousand people are seeing it initially and sharing it to others. So that number is good. Like it helps to have that starting base. But it doesn't. I don't think another three thousand followers is going to be great for me. And, and I don't care. I'm not going to brag about it. And advertise it. Maybe a little bit. Maybe to me. Yeah, exactly. I'll brag to you. We'll do it in the pre-show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of pre-show, so there's some interesting stuff happening with companies, many companies out there. One of them being Overstock. Overstock recently bought, and when I say recently, I mean October 2022. So coming up on a year almost, three quarters of the year, bought Bed Bath & Beyond for $2.8 billion in a cash and stock deal, including all of their retail locations. And so, you know, there's there's probably something to be said about that merger or that acquisition. And they have also recently redirected their domain to bedbathandbeyond.com. And some things are going wrong there. So not, not to, to dive too deep into that, but it seems like they're botching the migration somewhat. It seems like they migrated all of their pages to the homepage of Bed Bath & Beyond. 
And that is one of the cardinal sins of migration. So Eli, have you done any massive migrations in your past? And, you know, like, how, how do you, like, do you have any, any tricks or, or, or tips for how to get it right? Yeah. I mean, we, we need to rip on this a little bit. Just go to, go to overstock.com, watch it redirect. This is, this is an SEO mess up, I think, but it's also like a business mistake. Like you've had this brand, I think overstock might not have been like the coolest brand ever, but it's been around almost 20 years. It's been around for a really long time. So to give up on that and then to move over to Bed Bath & Beyond, which has also been around for a really long time and is well known to people, I, I don't know if that really makes sense. Like if I were them, I feel like I would have operated them separately, keep overstock the way it is and try to bring them together. Maybe actually, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond had this other brand. I don't know if overstock bought also Bye Bye Baby. Right. So it really doesn't matter. So bye bye baby. I'm sure you had to go there for buying stuff for your baby. It doesn't matter to people that are owned by Bed Bath Beyond. So why should it matter to anyone that Bed Bath Beyond is owned by Overstock? Like operate those separate brands and figure out how to bring them together to just immediately redirect. They're giving up on everything they had built with overstock.com. And if you look at the footer of Bed Bath now, you see how many times Overstock did this. So they were overstock.com, they're o.com, they are zero.com, they were o.co, and all this like branding efforts. So and I don't know if you remember when you lived in the Bay Area, but the Oakland A's, do you remember this? Yep. What was the name of their stadium? Oh, no, not, not that. Yes, o.co arena. There you go. Really? So they, o.co? Yes. Holy cow. So they overstock owned the arena. It's a terrible, it's got to be the worst baseball stadium in the history of America, right? Like the seats are falling apart. It seats like 150,000 people and they're lucky if they get 20,000 people. They're moving to Vegas. Like it's just like, just a Cinderella story there. But they played in the Odako Arena. I think it might even still be called the Odako Arena. That's now we, now we got to look this up. It's Oakland Coliseum. There's no SGE response, so just give me the name of it. By the way, why are you looking it up? It looks like Bye Bye Baby is returning a 4-4 in all of its pages. Any page you go to, it just says, hold on, we'll be right back. And I'm not sure if that's a technical glitch or if they just put everything on ice there. <sighs> what a mess. All right. It was renamed Overstock.com Coliseum in 2011. And then it was renamed the O.co Oh, on April 27, 2011, it was named Overstock.com Coliseum. And then on June 6, 2011, it was named the O.co Coliseum. So I think we're talking about branding experts right here. So the, the, the tip of the iceberg here is this migration screw up. But I, I don't know that they, they made the best choice there and just moving from Overstock to Bed Bath & Beyond. It was a weird name anyways. So, you know, they didn't really... I don't know, what does overstock sell? Is it like a cheaper Amazon or something? But I think to just give up on that entire thing and move over to Bed Bath Beyond is a mistake. And obviously there's SEO implications there. I have done migrations before and you need to be really careful about it because the Google, the way I think everything at Google is set up is to imitate human understanding and the way humans would process something. So within SEO, you could do a three to one redirect and that in theory brings over the ranking value, but you can't do a 301 redirect. So for example, you can't buy like 
an adult site or not adult site and move it over. Cause like human understanding is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, actually whitehouse.com is one of those. I think whitehouse.com used to be an adult site. So you can't just be like, whoa, whoa, whitehouse.gov and whitehouse.com and let's move this over. And like all of a sudden an understanding of it, cause I don't think it used to be adult is just going to change. You're going to bring over those links and it's just going to rank the same on the non-adult stuff. Like there's an understanding there. So I don't know that automatically Google's going to be like, Oh, overstock is bed, bath and beyond. Let's just merge these two things together or whatever overstock ranked on, you know, bed, bath and beyond. Well, so that's what I've seen in the past. You have to be really cautious about it, making sure there was a one-to-one exchange of this page over here used to be like that. Now it's like this and Google will hopefully respect that and keep it the same. But if it's entirely new, it's not really going to happen. It's just, that's a pipe dream. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree with you. That's, that's my experience as well. And I have tried this in the past. I've tested this where we redirected articles to other articles that were completely unrelated and you see a little bump in traffic and then it goes right back down to baseline because google understands that these redirects are not there's not there's it shouldn't pass authority quote unquote because there's no direct relationship i'm also i also want to highlight that you know big companies especially companies that have been out there for a while they have a lot of red tape and they they make sometimes poor decisions for reasons of saving capacity or you know saving money in general i don't know exactly what's going on at overstock so i always you know i i do make judgments from the outside but at the same time i want to acknowledge that i don't know everything inside and there might be more factors leading up to the decisions that i don't have a clue about that might make sense when you're at this company so for example it could be that maintaining all these sites was just too much overhead maybe there was a lot of technical debt and the business decided that it wasn't worth an investment into getting them you know up to speed and that's why they did the redirect from a pure seo lens obviously there are probably three severe grave mistakes that happen in this migration and that probably cost them a lot of money but again from a business perspective we don't we cannot do a perfect cost benefit analysis without knowing all the details that being said i am going to write about it because i do think the case is incredibly interesting but i, I do want to at the same time acknowledge that you know we don't know all the details and i don't want to spit on the teams that actually sit at overstock or bed bath and beyond and have to deal with all that stuff so i do want to acknowledge that well, let's not blame the SEO agency. There's it could just be the the you know the leadership, like you said. But I I think there's there's an even worse example in this space of a, a bad redirect. Do you remember Buy.com? Yeah. So I remember buying something from Buy.com. It's probably like 15 years ago. I had a horrible experience because I think this is the earlier days where like this is where Amazon won out. Amazon always had a great experience. We'll ship to you in two days. If you have a problem, you message us. Buy.com. I remember buying something and it just like never showed up and they charged me. And, there was no way to call customer support. So buy.com, the do, the business and the domain was bought by Rakuten, which is, I guess, like the Amazon of Japan. And they redirected buy.com to Rakuten, which obviously makes no sense. You have the one of the best, uh, probably the best e-commerce name in the world, buy.com. You could build a lot of branding off of that. You could build a lot of TV ads. And then you redirect it to a name that's unrecognizable and unpronounceable to many Americans. This is like Rakuten or Rakuten or like, what is, what is this? So obviously Japanese people like, oh, that's their Amazon. But in America, where Rakuten was trying to grow, they took like that amazing name and they redirected it to something where I feel like the first time I even typed it in and when buy.com to Rakuten, I'm like, wait a second, did they get hacked? Like, what the hell is this? So Overstock is is walking in the shadows of the buy.com Rakuten merger there. And I just want to say, like, I lived in 
in Asia for a couple of years. And there is a different hierarchy around decision-making in Asia, which is possibly where that decision made in Asia. It is, it's what's the word for it. It's frowned upon to object to what your superior said in a, in an, in a work environment. So I find like in American offices, and I don't know how it is in Europe, but in American offices, if the CEO is saying something in a small meeting, not obviously on all hands, a junior employee, not an intern, but like a junior employee can just ask a question and say, Hey, have you thought about this? And they won't be tossed out of the room. So again, depends on, on their status, but everyone can sort of have a say and say like, I just haven't thought here and it might be listened to in Asia. You can't really do that. So if the most senior person says something, it would be frowned upon to object. So not reading into this too much. Maybe this is how it happened, but you know, some, the CEO of buy.com or Rakuten is like, Hey, let's redirect this to Rakuten. And everyone else just like, that's a great idea. While they're all like cringing and dying inside, no one wanted to object and say, maybe you're unaware, but like that is literally the best name you could ever have on the internet for e-commerce. <laughs> so go the other way, move Rakuten to buy.com. Well, AI.com redirects to Elon Musk's new AI company. So I, <laughs> I want to judge that. <laughs> exactly. That being said, let's talk a bit about Hopin. So Hopin, very interesting case. It's an event streaming platform that gains incredible popularity and valuation during the pandemic. At the height of their success, which was about 2021, they were valued at a stunning 7.6 billion US dollars. And they raised, I think, almost a billion dollars in equity. Now they dissolved all of that and sold their event streaming assets to Ring Central, price unknown, probably pennies on the dollar. And and yeah, the company is kind of imploding. It's very interesting because the data that's public says that they made about a hundred million dollars in annual recurring revenue at their height, which would mean if you compare that to a seven point seven billion dollar valuation, we're talking about a seventy seven multiple, like a, a 77x multiple, which is absolutely ridiculous. Right now, companies are trading at about a four to six, maybe seven to eight multiple. So not too surprising that that didn't work out. Their Q1 revenue in 2023 was down by minus 30% year over year. And, you know, just retaining employees with that kind of stock drawer, you know, the decrease in, in, in value of the company is super hard. One person who jumped ship before it, you know, was too late is the CEO who sold, I think, almost $200 million in stock to date. And now, of course, got, got ousted as part of this move. So what do we say about that, Eli? Like, what's the, you know, like, like uh, to me, this is a case of, of crazy hype and uh, maybe bubble-like thinking. But can it, can it work out? You know, can you live up to the hype as a company like that? Or are you doomed to fail? Well, good on the CEO for realizing that it was all hype and walking away from the table with his money. I think that this comes back to like everything around COVID where everyone thought things were permanent. Like, remember all the rage around like offices. We're never going back to the office. And too many people made decisions about like never going back to the office and moved to Montana and Idaho. And suddenly they're surprised when their office is like, hey, we're all here and you're not. So either you're fired or you're, you're back. So... Hopin is the same thing. There was this rage around like, wow, we just figured out how to host an event at like 99% margin. We're going to pay Hopin and we don't need to pay unions. We don't need to pay event staff. 
we don't even need to pay speakers because they're not really doing anything. They're just sitting in their backyard on, on Zoom. And there was too much hype there. And I think that, that everyone was a victim of that, thinking that COVID was permanent, this life where we didn't connect with people anymore is permanent. And, you know, look, Zoom lost a lot, but they pivoted. And Zoom is not just about, like, remote work. It, I mean, Zoom existed before the pandemic, but Zoom, and they went through a big layoff and the valuation has changed, but Zoom is still here. And Riverside is still here. And StreamYard, which is a part of Hopin, is still here. But the idea of making only virtual events is not. And I feel like, again, it's hard to judge somebody because we don't know any of the decisions they made, but I feel like Hopin should have realized this was somewhat temporary and used all that money they raised to build for the future rather than to go all in on this you know, temporary thing, which, I mean, everyone knew was going to end up being temporary. Yeah, it's a tough call, man. It's a really tough call. On the one hand, when you have a wave, you want to ride it and you want to go for it. But on the other hand, you know, again, hindsight is always twenty twenty. And I've seen an ad Shopify where everybody is energized and enthusiastic about the numbers exploding and going through the roof. And it, you know, it, it creates this bias in your head that you want to paint a scenario and a vision for the future where that all adds up. It's incredibly difficult to withstand that kind of hype or say, you know what, we don't want the extra business because we can scale as fast. Incredibly difficult. So I want to acknowledge it's a hard decision and that it did some things very well. I'm not going to judge the platform itself. I've seen an SEO, they did, they did a good job and content, they did a good job. But so yeah, incredibly tough situation. And what we're seeing now is kind of a baseline return where people value in-person events, online streaming still happens. It's not, it's not completely gone, but certainly not. It didn't sustain at that, at that height that it, that it used to be. I remember Clubhouse. I do remember Clubhouse and I had, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't pessimistic about Clubhouse. I was, but I acknowledge totally that it was a pandemic phenomena and now the company is close to that. I think they pivoted. I don't even know what they do. I, I can't believe they raised almost a billion dollars. I just can't believe that anyone really thought that this was the future. Like this was the next Twitter or like, it was so obvious that it was a, a pandemic thing. It was a replacement for events and people were bored. I don't think it was obvious. Look, even A16Z invested and not all the investments are perfect, but there were lots of high caliber investors who who saw who all have FOMO potential FOMO. sure who have FOMO right and there's this uh, it's his own kind of game but uh, even they try to 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 weigh their options and decisions carefully so it could have as well played out right like it's, it's in hindsight it's always easy to judge for bad for all the hopping employees I hope everybody lands safely but incredibly tough call speaking about employees and landing safely in layoffs Eli we're seeing more of our friends in SEO you know getting getting red letters and, you know, having to look for new jobs. What are you observing right now? So I, I try to be as helpful as I can. And a lot of people reach out to me asking me to help them, mostly because I've been saying that I can be helpful for the last few years and I'm happy that I'm able to. But unfortunately, I don't know a lot of jobs that are hiring right now. So I do the best I can. If you're looking for a role, obviously reach out. The more people I know, the more people I can find. If you're hiring, reach out to both of us so we can try to get you to someone where there's lots of people. But what I can say is I'm hearing more and more of the things that used to bother me incredibly when I was an employee and interviewing for new jobs. And it's just, it's so shameful that these things still exist. So at the top of my list of things that hiring managers and recruiters do is ghosting. It's just so disrespectful to everyone. And it's, it, I mean, it's, the weirdest thing is that people do this and they're doing it as humans. So like if a, a recruiter who has a name 
ghosts me, I'm going to remember that individual as an individual, not as a representative of their company, because that is disrespectful and, and wrong. And I, I just hear so much of this ghosting, especially in a time where like, you know, someone doesn't have a job and they get excited that they're almost at the end and they're potentially going to get hired and then they get ghosted or they don't get ghosted, but they go for three onsite interviews and they get an email saying, after careful consideration, we've decided to move in another direction and we'll keep your resume on file. That's appropriate for someone that has a phone screen. That's not appropriate for someone that has been invited to three on three onsite interviews, maybe had lunch with some employees. That deserves a phone call. That deserves a personal email saying, you know, we've decided to go in a different direction. I know it's when I was interviewing for jobs and I got some of those. There's one job in particular where I was I was recruited by a senior VP who came to me on LinkedIn and then they brought me on site first for lunch and then I went through rounds of interviews and then I got one of those canned emails. So I just sent it back to the I forwarded it directly to the person who invited me for lunch at this company and like what the hell? And like I got an apology of like no, this isn't you weren't supposed to get this. We were going to like tell you that we've decided to not hire or we didn't get budget or whatever it is, but you, those are wrong. So I, I think that's one of my biggest pet peeves that hiring managers do. If you are hiring and you do that, I unfortunately will not be able to send anyway to you. That's just, that's just wrong. What are, what are some things that you see in you know, what are your pet peeves around this, this, uh, this process? Well, you know, I'm not a recruiter, so I, I, I don't know what it's like, but as a, as an applicant and as a hiring manager, I can say that as a as somebody who applies at the company, you always want to get past the recruiter as quickly as possible. So what, what I've done in the past is I've just looked at, so say I, re, I applied for an SEO position at a company, I just looked at who manages SEO and reached out to those people on LinkedIn, coming back to LinkedIn here, and asked them like, hey, you know, like ask them for information or who the hiring manager is, et cetera. So I always try to bypass the recruiter because they don't know a lot about the subject matter. Their job is just to get people through the first screening and then on the phone with the hiring manager. So you kind of want to you want kind of want to bypass them. I've also, you know, many times seen these canned responses. I've gotten ghosted by companies and I think that by reaching out to the hiring manager, your chances of getting ghosted are so much lower because now you have, you know, there is kind of this responsibility that people have and they're known in the in the industry, et cetera. So that's why you want to get to the hiring manager as quickly as possible. I also think that in general, the process could be so much better if it was simply more transparent. For example, if as an applicant, you get an email saying, oh, thanks for applying. You're part of the next round. We just want to let you know there are 10 other people who are also in the next round. So us coming back to you might take two to three weeks. And just setting these expectations makes the process a lot more enjoyable. But when you get this canned response of like, oh, sorry, it didn't work out, you have no idea why or what happened. It could have been the role was erased, right? Which then is not your fault, but you should know that. It could be that somebody else was preferred. And it could also be that somebody else was preferred and it didn't work out and then they might come back to you. So just give applicants that additional context. There's no shame, no problem, no law that says you cannot do that as long as you don't give away names or anything like that. So I think that's one way to make the process a lot better. I've also been many, many times on the other side as a hiring manager and, you know, had, had to manage expectations about how quick I could, quickly I could come back to people simply because, again, there are five interviews or 10 interviews lined up. You already have a large team to manage. There are some fires. You're just not going to, it's not going to like, you know, fly through these interviews 
Plus, typically these interviews happen with many people at the company. So you're not the only one, you need a meeting to kind of align and see what other people said, et cetera, et cetera. So the process is always a bit slower, which makes it like slower than you want, which makes it painful for the applicants. But I think with more transparency, you can make it better for everyone. And that's, if I was a recruiter, again, I don't know what it's like, but I would think about how can I stand out here by making it super easy for applicants to know where they are. And if it didn't work out, like, you know, with AI, you can write much better emails than these canned responses. Just let AI write an email with, you know, the, the high level reason for why it didn't work out and people will feel way more taken care of. I need to go on a rant for a second. There are so many CEOs who talk about, and there's a particular quote. It comes from the CEO of, I think it's SAS or SAS. It's an old software company. I think they're based in the... Carolinas, maybe. I remember learning about them in school. They were one of the first companies to offer amazing perks. So they had childcare on site, and this is way before the Silicon Valley perks. And the, the CEO's quote was 95% of his assets drive out the front gate every night, and it's his job to make sure they come back the next day. So Jim Goodnight is the, the source of this quote. So you heard, you hear this all the time from CEOs, and they talk about our people are the most important, and we invest in our people. But you know what? They're lying. Because when it comes to layoffs, they let them go and they didn't have any sort of personal connection. They put their apology letters, they, they fired their employees, and then they put their apology letters on LinkedIn looking for sympathy. But those employees that were let go didn't feel value because they were just felt like assets. At the same time, when it comes to hiring, if you care about your employees, then you care to tell your recruiters not to ghost people. You care to make your hiring managers have a good experience. You care to be transparent the way you just said. And that's the way you get good employees because everyone talks about your company as the place to go and build a career. They don't, when there's glass door, you can write about your interview experiences. That's not how you hire great employees. You know, again, during my interview times, I had a fantastic experience interviewing at Google and I could see why they are able to get some of the best employees. I had a fantastic experience interviewing at Amazon and I can see why they're able to get the best employees. I had a horrible experience interviewing at then it was called Facebook. Most people still probably refer to it as Facebook. But I had a horrible experience interviewing at Facebook where I got ghosted, I got misinformation, and and like it was it wasn't a gr- overall great kid. I did interview there a couple of times. I can see why Facebook employees don't feel as loyal to the company. Maybe they're loyal to their salaries because of that experience. And it's a massive company. But you, again, I, I know so many employees that go back and forth to Google. They love working there. The hiring process, some people have a terrible experience, but I, I think it's it's bureaucratic rather than unfriendly and, and mean and cruel. So if you actually feel that your employees are your best assets, then hire them properly, make them make the humans feel valued. And if you have to let them go, make them feel valued as humans and not tossed aside like trash. Preach, nothing more to add there. One thing we should talk about real quick though, talking, you know, probably no good bridge here to, to kind of our wrap up, but we recently had a, or before this call had a good conversation about advertising and sports and how normal it is in Europe to have logos on what's it called everywhere just everywhere everywhere in the stadium and and, and on sports teams Eli, like what's what's your take should you grab every opportunity to advertise or place ads or is there sacred ground you should you would not want to do this on so you're european i'm sure you have your european standpoint but i i think the first ones to do this was the mets so the mets had an advertise so i mean <laughs> baseball's always had much less advertising and many sports have been much less advertising than europeans so let's go with baseball for a second 
baseball, they don't, there's no ads on the field, on the actual field. There were no ads on the actual jerseys. They've actually, they've loaded up more of the stadium area with ads, but that's not just for the people in the stadium. That's also for TV. So like get TV impressions. I think the Mets were the first ones to sell a patch on the jersey. So New York Presbyterian sponsored the jersey with a patch. And then the San Francisco Giants just announced a partnership with Cruz Automotive, which is my GM, to have a patch on their jersey. And I think that patch, many people are on, on Twitter or X are saying it looks nice, so that's good. But I think there should be more of that. Why not? You know, these are impressions... Sports is, I, hopefully they share this with the players, so hopefully they discount the tickets, but it's areas right for advertising, so why not? I think the Europeans are doing it right. I don't know, man. As, an Europe, as a European, I'm not sure if there are... It's, it's, it's very difficult to say what should be sacred ground and what not, but the question is always how far can you take it, and can you not just place you know, ads everywhere on the players, like their foreheads and their legs and the shoes and stuff. And I think there's, uh, I like that there are limits to it, right? I don't mind ads, but I think everything, everything being an ad might be a little too much. You know, do you know how much a little logo is on a Formula One race car halo? No, tell me. Three years, $6 million for like, you're not the only logo on this halo, you know? So it's not just, you know, sports like soccer or or so, but it's also stuff like Formula One where you have actually lots of ads. But then again, you look at a sport like tennis, which is almost free of ads, right? Like the the players don't have any any logos on them. Maybe on the outside of the stadium, like the 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 rails and stuff, maybe you find some ads there. So depends a bit on the sport, in my opinion, but some sports are seem to be more heavily monetized than others. And I, I'm a big fan of monetize everything. There's more, it just keeps the economy going around. Like, you know, I think tennis, either the top stars make a ton of money, but the not top stars don't really make money. But everyone would make more money if you could get more of that revenue flowing. I don't know, I don't know what the TV deals are like on tennis, but I'm sure they share it with whoever's on TV. But those would be more lucrative if you're now also having advertising impressions while they're playing. So as a marketer, why not? Like, sponsor sponsor the racket sponsor the shorts sponsor the the court sponsor it all yeah i don't know man you see the thing is i, I probably idealize this all a bit too much but a part of me always wishes that people would pay for things directly and there were fewer ads but reality is that the internet runs on ads and a lot of tech companies also run on ads so you know not all of them but it has a massive impact on the economy so gotta acknowledge that yeah, I mean, this is a great pivot to like what we should close out with, which is if you sponsored us, we would be mentioning your brand right now. And, you know, if you give us T-shirts, we'll wear your T-shirt. So <laughs> just no flex caps, please. No hats. Whatever. Whatever you pay for, we're willing to do. These are impressions available for your, your purchase. Oh, my God. Speak for yourself. I'm not going <laughs> to wear a hat. <laughs> I'm just going to say that's, that's where I draw the line. No hats. Well, my microphone is sponsored by Shure and yours is sponsored by Shopify. So there I'm, you go. I'm a shareholder. Got to say that. That being said, Eli, good conversation. Talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Kevin. Bye.